All right, I want to start by inviting you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. I think you're going to get the most out of this if you follow along in the text. So I always invite you, I start with that, with turning to wherever we're going to study. And today it's going to be Luke chapter 6. So I strongly encourage you to open up and follow along in Luke 6. As we go through this gospel reading plan, I mentioned during the welcome, we're starting now with the gospel of Luke starting tomorrow. So this week you're going to be reading through the first six chapters in the gospel of Luke. And what we're going to do during the sermon series uh, over the next few weeks is we're going to really study in depth Uh, Luke chapter 6 in this sermon that Jesus delivers in Luke chapter 6. And as I've been reading through the Gospels and as we get ready to study Luke chapter 6 today and over the next few weeks, one of the questions that I've been asking myself and I want to ask you this morning is, do you really trust Jesus? I've asked myself that. Do I really trust what Jesus has to say and what Jesus teaches? Uh, There's the late Dallas Willard was a great Christian author and thinker, and he came up with this phrase that he called vampire Christians. A vampire Christian is somebody who wants Jesus only for his blood, but not for his teachings. And a lot of us probably would fit into that category. We love and appreciate the fact that Jesus shed his blood for us, and because of that, our sins are forgiven, and we have the hope of eternal life But when it comes to what Jesus taught, some of these radical things that Jesus taught us that are unnatural, that are uncomfortable, that are backwards, that are upside down, uh, we could take it or leave it. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. We're not so sure about your words. And so what we're studying this week is it's Discipleship 101. These are some of the core teachings of Jesus. And my question is, do I really trust Jesus with his words? Do I really trust Jesus to live my life this way? As we get ready to study this sermon over the next few weeks, another question that I have is, does Jesus really expect us to live like this? He tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and turn the other cheek and treat others how you want to be treated. And instead of getting the the little speck out of somebody else's eye, get the log out of your own eye, these are the things that Jesus teaches that are really hard to put into practice. So does he really expect us to actually live this out or is it optional? Is it optional? Is he just saying, you know what, it would be nice if you lived this way. You don't really have to, though. Well, the answer to the second question comes at the end of the sermon is where I'm going to start this morning. And that's Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. This is how Jesus wraps this sermon up. And I want to start by reading that. I have a backup clicker in my pocket, and I think I keep hitting it, and that's what's going back. There we go. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. This is how Jesus ends the sermon. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act Is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, it immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. When I read these words, my initial thought goes back to my childhood when I was in VBS. Anybody else? You know the song, The Wise Man Built the House? You know that song? I'm not going to lead it for you, but I was hoping somebody would kick in. 
You do that, wise man built his house upon the rock, and then you say that three times, and the rains came down, and the floods came up, and then the wise man's house stood what? You remember the song? Stood firm. And then the foolish man built his house on the sand. I don't remember all the hand motions. And then you do that three times. Is that it? Sand right here? You do that three times, and then the floods came down, or the rains came down, the floods came up, and the foolish man's house went splat. And then it, the rest of the song is, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was singing it to my daughter last night, and I realized towards the end, I don't even remember all the words, but you get the gist of it, right? When you read this, that's my immediate thought. Is I go back to childhood, I go back to VBS, and I think of that song, which is kind of a fun, catchy VBS song. Yet when I reread Jesus' words as an adult, I get a little bit scared. And I'll admit that to you. Because what Jesus says is so very serious. What Jesus teaches is, yes, I do intend for you, if you want to follow me, to live like this. And that's hard to do because what Jesus teaches us to do in this sermon is so incredibly backwards and unnatural and uncomfortable. Back in the summer, I read this news story about a house that was uh, teetering off of a cliff over Lake Michigan. Anybody else read this story? It caught my attention, and this is a real picture. And I read the story, and apparently the earth has been moving and eroding from under this house. So when they initially built the house, they built it on solid ground. But since then, the part of the earth has kind of slipped away. The cliff has slipped away into Lake Michigan. So now part of their house, about a third of their house, was hanging over this cliff. And I read this story, and I thought, well, that's kind of scary. And there's different angles that you can see. Like there's a, a side door on the side of that house where if you walked out, you're just falling to the ground and into the lake. And as the story goes, it's a true story, that uh, their insurance doesn't cover this because their insurance doesn't co cover earth movement. And they still owed about $100,000 on the house. And if the house eventually slipped into Lake Michigan, they would be fined for contaminating the water. So they were in a really tight spot and I looked the story up this week, and that was from back in the summer, and apparently they have decided to demolish the house, and they try to fasten it so it doesn't fall into the lake. I was, looked at this picture, I read that story, and I thought, man, that is a great metaphor for my life and probably a lot of other Christians as well. If Jesus says, acting on his teachings, living them out is like building on a solid foundation, then I've done some of that. Like, I've, I really like the God is love, let's love our neighbor, love each other, uh, forgiveness is okay sometimes, you know, there's a lot of other things that Jesus teaches, but love your enemies, turn the other cheek, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I want to build my foundation on that, so my life and a lot of other Christians that I know, our foundation kind of looks like this house, we sort of build our foundation on Jesus, and then we sort of don't, we want to leave a little for ourselves, and yet Jesus comes with the intention that we have to build our entire life on his foundation and just trust him, that he knows what he's talking about. If not, when the storm comes, we're going to be washed away like the, wise man, or the foolish man's house who went splat. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of this sermon. We're not going to look at the entire sermon this morning. But I'm going to give you a little context in Luke chapter 6. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He spends the night praying to God, and then he chooses his 12 disciples. It's a big moment for him. He comes down from the mountain into Luke chapter 6, verse 17. He came, he came down with them and stood on a level place. 
Now, where Jesus is standing is key to the title of this sermon that Jesus delivers. It's called the Sermon on the Plain because it's on a level place. It's on a plain. The equivalent to this sermon, you know where that's at? We call it the Sermon on the what? Sermon on the Mount. You know that. Everybody uh, who's familiar with the Bible knows the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Well, in Luke 6, this is kind of Luke's equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. It's just not as long as the Sermon on the Mount. So some, are, some words are similar and some are, are different. It deviates in, in different areas. So Jesus stands to deliver this sermon on the plain, and all these people have gathered around Jesus. People that are hurting, people that are suffering, demon-possessed. I mean, it's the type of crowd we probably wouldn't want to be around. And these are the people that are flocking to Jesus. And he's standing there with, this, with the multitudes, with this crowd, and with his disciples. And he begins to preach this very strange and backwards and upside-down sermon. And this is how he starts it. Verse 20, he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Now, if I'm one of the new disciples that Jesus has just called after his all-night prayer on the mountain, um, I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind at this point. I used my imagination earlier this week, and I imagined myself being Andrew. And I'm Andrew. I'm standing there listening to Jesus teach this stuff. I've just left my whole life behind, my fishing net, my boat, my career, my family, to follow Jesus. And he starts saying this kind of stuff. And I can picture myself looking over at Peter and mouthing the words, what? Like, what is he talking about? We gave up our lives for this. What, everything he's saying seems completely backwards. He starts with these blessings, blessed are, this is known as the Beatitudes, the word blessed is this Greek word makeros, and it, it basically just means happy or congratulations. So look at what Jesus is saying congratulations or happy to, those who are poor. Well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. We spend a lot of our lives trying not to be poor. We, we would rather not be poor. We would rather either be rich or at least be comfortable. But Jesus says happy are the poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. I, I don't know of anybody who would prefer to be so poor that they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Nobody wants to live that way, but yet Jesus says, congratulations to you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. That's a strong word. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who has wept, maybe because of a tragedy maybe because of depression, maybe because of something serious going on in your life. And it's gut-riching to hear somebody weep, and yet Jesus says, congratulations to you who weep now. And then in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you, when they insult you, they make fun of you. You're blessed. Congratulations. As human beings, we spend most of our lives trying to belong. It's just natural. 
Right? If we don't find belonging in church or in youth group, usually people will try to find a place where they belong, where they fit in, where they're accepted. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite here. Blessed are you who are excluded. What is he talking about? And then he gets into these woes. So if you're comparing this to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew just has the Beatitudes, but he doesn't have the woes. And a woe is not necessarily a condemnation. You know, if blessed, it could be translated as happy. Woe could be translated as sad. It's an expression of grief. So he says in verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Well, we're Americans. We're sitting in this comfortable building right now, and a lot of us, whether we realize it or not, we probably chased the American dream, and Jesus is saying, sad to you if you've achieved that. Woe to you who are full now, who are well fed. Uh, I've mentioned before when Jessica and I, back in 2011, uh, we lived in Rwanda, Africa, and one of their compliments that they would often give to me is they would come up to me and they'd say, you are so fat. And I would always tell them, that hurts my feelings, why do you say that? And they said, no, it's a compliment. That means you've been fortunate in life to have enough food. So they view being well fed as being blessed. Jesus says the opposite here, woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who are laughing now. Sad to you who are laughing. What in the world does that mean? We all like to laugh. Laughter is good medicine. It means you don't take life too serious, or maybe you don't take yourself too serious. It brings joy to your heart. Jesus himself uses some humor later on in the sermon, but here he says, woe to you who are laughing now. And then he says, woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. When people speak well of you, that's like having a good reputation. I thought we were supposed to have a good reputation. I would much rather have a good reputation than have people exclude me or hate me or insult me or gossip about me. And yet, everything Jesus seems to teach here is backwards, it's upside down, it goes against the norm. So why is Jesus teaching this, and what does he mean by this? I've spent a lot of time listening to different preachers, reading different commentators, Christian authors, who try to explain, most of the time when they deal with this, they're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, trying to explain what this means. And I can promise you, you're not going to get full agreement across the board. There's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions on what Jesus means by this, but nobody fully agrees, and maybe that's part of the purpose. It's kind of like a parable. He doesn't always tell us exactly what he means by it, which means we got to keep wrestling with it. we got to keep coming back to it. So he's intentionally being a little obscure here. We're like, what, what is he saying? And Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, and about the Beatitudes, he says, anybody who responds with a quick and easy answer probably has not taken the Beatitudes seriously enough. So if anybody says, here's what it means, it's easy, it's simple, what Philip Yancey is saying, yeah, they haven't spent much time with it. And he wrote a whole book on Jesus' life and teachings, and, and one of the things that he points out is if we don't get the Beatitudes, or if we don't at least wrestle with it, we're not going to get the rest of what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 6. So let's try to find some meaning in these blessings and these woes and this upside-down teaching and try to make a little bit of sense out of what Jesus means and why he taught this. So I'm going to give you a few layers of understanding this, and at least it will get us closer 
to understanding what Jesus taught. And the first one is, does he mean it literally, or is there a spiritual meaning? Is there a deeper meaning behind this? With most of Jesus' teachings, usually there's a deeper meaning. He often uses hyperbole or he uses exaggerated language, and he does that on purpose. Here it seems like Jesus is intentionally being provocative, like he is trying to get your attention, and he is trying to shock you a little bit. So let's look at the, the blessings and then compare them with the corresponding woes. Blessed are you who are poor. If you're reading Matthew chapter 5, what does Matthew say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, Luke doesn't say that, or he doesn't have Jesus saying that. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Now, about a month ago, I did a sermon on all four Gospels. I titled it One Person and Four Portraits, and I talked about how all four Gospels are equally relevant and equally authoritative, but each one is unique, and I gave each Gospel a nickname. And I nicknamed the Gospel of Luke the Outsider's Gospel because Luke writes in a way that appeals to the Gentiles and also to the outsiders, to the poor, to the hurting, to the marginalized. And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus seems to favor those who are poor economically. And he's hard on the rich. It teaches in Luke 12 the parable of the rich fool who stores up for himself bigger and bigger barns. And he says, this very day your life will be demanded of you. And what's going to happen with all this stuff? In Luke 16, he teaches the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you have one guy who's extremely wealthy and one guy who's extremely poor. And then when they die, everything is reversed. Jesus says you can't love both God and money. Uh, and Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus tells the rich man, the, it tells his disciples in Luke 12. And then later he tells the rich young ruler to sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Obviously, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke seems to favor those who are economically poor, and he's hard on those who are rich. Does he mean this here literally? Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Or is there a deeper meaning behind it, which it, that's the way it seems in the Gospel of Matthew? Overall, it seems that, and this is still true for our day in our modern world, is that usually those who have had a tough time in life, those who have struggled, those who maybe would fit under the category of poor or poor in spirit are those who are a lot more likely to be receptive of Jesus. And those who have money, those who are wealthy, which is pretty much all Americans, we struggle with apathy. We struggle with not really seeing our need for God. So maybe there's a deeper truth behind what Jesus is teaching here when he says, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, Woe to those who are well fed. I think it's the same concept. Just like those Rwandans, they view me as well fed, which they equate that with having money. It's the same concept in Jesus' world. If you have lots of money, you're going to have lots of food and you have lots of comfort. And because of that, you may be a little lethargic. You may be a little apathetic towards your faith. But those who are struggling and hurting just to get by, those are the ones that really rely on God. Maybe the same thing with blessed are those who weep now. Woe to those who are laughing now. Maybe there's a deeper meaning behind the laughter part. Not that laughter is wrong, because I, as I said, Jesus uses humor later on in his sermon. It's a good thing to laugh. Maybe what he means by that are those who are so comfortable they can just laugh and not take their faith very serious. Maybe that's the spiritual deeper meaning behind it. 
And blessed are those who are hated, excluded, insulted, and persecuted, and rejected, and woe to those who have a good reputation. What does that mean? Well, we know when later in the Gospels, when Jesus is betrayed, he's beaten, he's rejected, he's crucified. So if you've ever felt that or experienced any sort of rejection or excludedness because of the name of Jesus, well, then you're in good company because Jesus is right there with you. And woe to those who are well spoken of. Well, he equates that with false prophets. It's a good thing to have a good reputation, and maybe the deeper meaning behind what Jesus means here are those who have a good reputation for the wrong reasons. And maybe you can figure that out for your own life and what that means. Sometimes we chase attention and we want people to notice us and watch us for the wrong reasons. And that's the very thing the Pharisees were doing. So you look at these blessings corresponding with the woes and one layer of understanding that is maybe there's a little bit of a literal meaning, but there's also like this deeper spiritual meaning behind this. And then another layer of understanding this is that these are not prescriptions Rather, it's a description of the kingdom of God. With these blessings and woes, with these backwards, upside-down teachings, I don't think Jesus is saying, I command you to go be poor and to just be a miserable person and weep all the time and starve yourself and to make sure that people hate you. It's not a command. It's not a prescription. It's a description of what the kingdom of God looks like. And if you backed up and you looked at the people that have traveled to hear from Jesus, to be healed by Jesus. It's all those people who are poor and hurting and going to bed hungry. So when the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus teaches about this kingdom that is at hand, when the kingdom of God is ushered in, when the kingdom of God is breaking in, the values of the world are reversed. And these people who are often overlooked and marginalized, are becoming blessed because of the name of Jesus. So really, these blessings and these woes, which is how he starts his sermon, he's describing what's happening around him. Like in Luke 4, when he opens up the scroll in the synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and the blind are receiving the sight, the poor, or the good news is preached to the poor, the deaf hear, the lame are healed, Jesus is saying today that is fulfilled in your hearing, and that is what he's doing in his life and his teaching and his ministry. So these blessings and woes, this is kind of a description of what the kingdom of God looks like. And then a third layer of looking at this is this word eschatological reward or hope. Now, if you're looking at that and you're like, what is that word eschatological? And I debated whether or not to even use it because I'm sure most of us have never heard of this word. Uh, it's in so many commentaries, and I hear so many professors use it. It's time you learn it because I'm tired of trying to find a different word for it. So I went ahead and used it today. Eschatology, eschatological, it, it just has to do with the end of times, with, with judgment, with death, with the second coming, however you view that. When life comes to an end, and that will happen, that these blessings and woes kind of have this eschatological hope or reward to it. If you look back at verse 23, Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. So there is this hope for those who are suffering now, like the rich man and Lazarus, 
for those who may not have it easy or comfortable or have it made where they don't need God on this life, keep your hope, keep your faith, because there is a time coming when these things will be reversed. Uh, Philip Yancey calls these dangled promises. There is a reward, there is a time coming when there will be a hope of eternal life and things will be different, things will be better. So you look at these blessings and the woes and I've given you three layers and all it does is just get us a little closer to understanding what Jesus meant. It doesn't answer everything exactly. You can look at the spiritual deeper meaning. You can look at the fact that it's describing what's happening around Jesus when with his ministry and with the kingdom, and then you could look at the fact that he's offering us a hope beyond what this earth can offer us, storing up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. One of the best explanations that I've heard that's helped me understand how Jesus starts this sermon, I give a lot of credit to a Bible professor at Harding University named Dr. Monty Cox. I've heard him teach on the Sermon on the Mount many times. And there's a few things that he shares, and I'll share a quote with him in just a minute that have helped me understand this. And one of these starts with uh, this YouTube video that I've been watching this week. There's a guy named Destin Sandlin, and he has a YouTube video called Smarter Every Day. And one of the videos on the YouTube channel is called the Backwards Brain Bike. And he had people design intentionally a bike that goes backwards. Basically what that means is usually if you turn the handlebars, if you know how to ride a bike, you turn the handlebars to the right, where does the wheel go? On a normal bike, it goes to the right. If you turn the handlebars to the left, where does the wheel go? It goes to the left. If you know how to ride a bike, if you learned how to ride a bike as a kid, that's how you ride a bike. Well, this bike that he had designed does the exact opposite. When you turn the handlebars to the right, the wheel goes to the left. When you turn the handlebars to the left, the wheel goes to the right. Seems kind of funny, like a funny prank to pull on somebody, unless they got hurt, then it wouldn't be funny. But he knew it was coming, so he was the first one to test it out. And you watch in the video, he can't do it. It's so backwards to how his brain has functioned his whole life, he cannot get it down. And then you watch in this video, he goes and he speaks at colleges and all over the place, and even in different countries. And he'll bring this backwards bike up on stage and bring volunteers up on stage to try to ride the bike, and nobody can do it. Everybody falls off, even people that are extremely confident that they can do it or they'll try to switch their hands around. You can see in the video, people try all sorts of tricks, and nobody can do it because it's backwards. Our brains aren't wired to think and to react, and our motor skills don't react this way. He did say, though, in the video that after about eight months, he finally got it down. He finally was able to ride this backwards bike, and it took a lot of time and practice. And then he tried to ride a regular bike again, and guess what? He couldn't do it because he had rewired, retrained his brain to think backwards. And when I reread these teachings of Jesus, Luke chapter 6, and the way that he starts with these blessings and woes and everything is reversed around, everything is upside down, everything is backwards. This is what Jesus is doing. It's unnatural and it's uncomfortable. He's getting us to think backwards. Or really, in the kingdom of God, instead of being upside down, this is really right side up, the way the world should be. 
Another example that's helped me understand this is when you first learn to drive. Maybe you remember this. Maybe some of you are learning to drive right now. Parents, maybe you've taught your children to drive. It's difficult. It's unnatural at first. My first car was a little red Nissan truck. It was a stick shift. And I had to learn not only how to drive and use the turn signals and stop at the right times, I also had to learn how to use the clutch and the gas and balance it all out. And when I thought I had it down, I was out driving one day in Greenville, Texas, and I came up to a red light, so I stopped, and then it turned green, and I was the first car in line, and I tried to switch the, put it in first gear, switch the clutch and the gas, and I stalled out, so I had to restart the car, and I stalled out again, and I got so frustrated, I had to get out and switch with the person in the passenger seat so they could get me out of the jam. People were honking at me. It was embarrassing. It was so unnatural. The more I did it, the more I practiced it, the more it became second nature to me. And I think what Jesus teaches in this sermon works the same way. It's backwards, it's upside down, but it's possible. And back to Monty Cox, who I mentioned just a moment ago, one of the great questions I think he poses of this very teaching is can we so absorb these teachings Can we so internalize what Jesus teaches that it becomes second nature to us, that it becomes natural to us? It's like Destin Sandlin who learns to ride a backwards bike, or for us who learn to drive, it's hard at first, it's not natural at first, but then it becomes second nature. Is it possible, and we're going to study the rest of this sermon over the next few weeks, is it possible to live in such a way that we not only love people who love us, But it's instinct, it's second nature to love people who are not so kind to us. Is it possible for that to become natural to us? Is it possible for that to become natural to turn the other cheek? To pray for those who persecute you? Is it possible to treat others how you want to be treated? Is it possible to learn to not be so judgmental and condemning towards others? And to extend mercy? I think so. It's unnatural. It's uncomfortable. And then it still goes back to that question, do we really trust Jesus that this is the best possible way to live? There's this famous quote from G.K. Chesterton where he once wrote this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Which brings me back to that vampire Christian idea from Dallas Willard. The majority of the world that professes faith in Jesus would say, yes, I would like my sins to be washed away and be forgiven, but I'm not sure I want to build my whole life's foundation on these backwards, upside-down teachings. It's difficult, and often people walk away from Jesus because of it. If we go back to this question, do you really trust Jesus? And if you really do, then you'll know, you'll realize this is the best possible way to live. And then you will find life, and life to the fullest, John 10.10. So do you really trust Jesus? Read this sermon over the next few weeks as you read through the Gospels. and, And really ask yourself this. And then my other question is, do you trust Jesus with your eternity? Now, Some of you, maybe you've been visiting with us for a while, and maybe you've 
kind of been at church and, and read your Bible some, and you've been a part of this, sort of, and you've never stepped over that line. Maybe you've never fully given your life over to Christ, and you've never been baptized into Christ. Well, do you trust Jesus with not only your life now, but your life after death? Do you trust him with that? And maybe today's a good day to step over that line and be baptized into Christ, or at least start that conversation. We have shepherds, elders at this church who are available to talk with you, to meet with you. I'll be up front. Uh, James Stewart will be up front with me. Come find one of us if you want to have that conversation or if you need to be prayed for. I want to invite you to stand and sing at this time.